0: Hello, good afternoon, and uh, uh, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to uh, hear some of the most updated news about cyber defense at uh, NATO. Uh, I'm uh, uh, Sorin Dukaru, um, since December, senior fellow with uh, uh, the Hudson um, uh, Institute, Um, very much engaged with the Hudson Cyber Project. and former uh, assistant secretary, um, NATO assistant secretary general for emerging security challenges. uh, And one of the key uh, aspects that uh, I've been engaged uh, in was uh, um, cyber defense. And I had the distinct pleasure to uh, have a superb uh, team, to be engaged with a superb uh, cyber team. Uh, who is led uh, currently by christian uh, liflander uh, christian is uh, i think one of those who has been part of um, nato cyber section from the its very creation uh, uh, around 2010 when also the emerging security challenges division was uh, was created not that nato did not address cyber before and i see here peter flory um, who was Assistant Secretary General, NATO Assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment. And at that time, um, he was. it was that uh, division that was addressing the, the, the cyber issue. But uh, since 2010, um, the cyber developments um, have been one of the key and most dynamic um, stories um, um, within um, NATO. Um, and of course, this was also very much driven by the uh, threat landscape. Um, I think it's clear that uh, watching the, the news, um, that cyber defense or cyber attacks um, have become uh, the kind of weapon of uh, choice for inf- international confrontation um, uh, these days. And uh, they target and they affect um, domains like critical uh, infrastructure, energy, transport, uh, um, up to national elections or military operations. And um, I think it's not by chance that, uh, especially in the recent period, uh, governments, national governments, decided to go public also in uh, attributing uh, such uh, cyber attacks. And the most high-profile examples um, were recently, in in February this year, uh, the public attribution to the Russian military of the devastating so-called NotPetya attacks of uh, mid-July last year. Uh, And even more recently, last week, uh, the US and UK in the case of U.S., it was the Department of um, Homeland uh, Security and uh, CERT uh, U.S. Uh, that highlighted the uh, uh, danger of uh, specific uh, malware or Trojans uh, that were uh, installed by uh, Russian actors into um, switches or routers uh, that are at a, reflect the backbone of our our, um, uh, internet. So it's in in this context that uh, cyber uh, defense um, has been a growing theme, area of focus, um, within um, NATO. And less than two years ago, at the Warsaw uh, Summit, heads of state and government launched the so-called Cyber Defense uh, Pledge uh, aimed at focusing on aimed at strengthening the resilience of NATO um, and allied networks but also recognized cyberspace as a new domain of uh, military operations and uh, we are just a couple of months ago to the upcoming summit that will take place uh, in mid-July in, uh, in Brussels where um, the cyber issue is one of the higher-profile um, subjects, um, especially when it comes to the key theme of uh, strengthening NATO's deterrence and defense, and also when it comes to the, the issue of uh, um, projecting stability vis-a-vis the uh, allied partners and you know, strengthening uh, their cyber resilience mm-hmm. is also one key area. And last but not least, it's also a driving force of NATO modernization. So um, it's uh, in this context that uh, uh, it's a distinct pleasure to to greet Christian um, uh, Lieflander. He is um, a continuously rising star within uh, NATO. Um, He, um, you know elevated his his, uh, status uh, just in a couple of years from um, what I would say the most experienced cyber representative at NATO to that of the deputy head of the cyber section, now the head of the cyber section. And the way I see, I think this uh, should become what we call a directorate within uh, NATO, a unit with um, highest responsibility. Um, And... um, I'm going to start by um, asking him to address a bit the cyber threat uh, uh, landscape Um, and what are the most important uh, trends that uh, one uh, can see in a run up to the NATO summit from NATO's uh, uh, perspective. and with this, uh, Christian, uh, welcome. And uh, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Soren. And, and good afternoon to you all. Um, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be back uh, in DC, to be back in the United States. Um, to me, this uh, sort of represents almost like a homecoming, I tell you. I mean, having uh, sort of with my one foot in, in Europe, but another one firmly fixed here in the United States with, with my background uh, in West Point and in the School of Foreign Service. Um, and it's it's good to be here in Hudson. It could be good to be uh, with you, Soren. Um, now, when it comes to NATO's story um, uh, and cyber, I think we have to recognize that um, quite often. I mean, we tend to forget that NATO has been in this business of cyber for quite a long time. We just didn't call it cyber very long time ago. It used to be. Uh, information assurance or it used to be uh, the CIS security etc so the word cyber really sort of starts to um, emerge um, primarily after the 2007 cyber attacks against Estonia um, and really the the focus you see that sort of change in our focus when it comes to sort of looking at this issue that I think um, used to be largely a, a something that was, Very much a a technical phenomenon. And and nowadays, we indeed, uh, as you pointed out, we very much sort of look at it as part and parcel of everything that we do and as something that has a sort of a strategic impact. Um, And of course, you know, when you look at what is happening out there, the the threat landscape, um, cyber quite often is not only an end to itself, but also a means to an end. In other words, uh, when we look, look at what is happening, it's not only the the attacks themselves, the uh, you know either you know against the sort of the NATO networks or against the Allied um, networks, uh, but it's also the, the range of different actors, the hacktivists, the, the criminals, but also um, I would put it to hostile state actors. Um, and I would highlight indeed the the attribution of uh, NotPetya to the Russian Federation and WannaCry to the DPRK in this regard that continued to challenge uh, our sort of day-to-day activities. Um, And what is also interesting in this regard is that quite often, um, and this was evidenced also in the the DNC uh, case, is that, um, as I mentioned, cyber being used as a sort of um, means to an end. In other words, you use cyber means in order to perhaps exfiltrate information, but then it is being used for um, other purposes in other means. Uh, by other means, uh, which, according to um, my interpretation, sort of uh, is connected, but doesn't really fall within the, the understanding of what cyber defense is, uh, at least from a NATO point of view. Um, and quite often, when you look at these attacks, um, well, I would also put it to you, not Petya and cry, um, they tend to fall into the gray area, uh, not something that sort of is really below the threshold that doesn't really sort of rise to the level of the armed attack that I think continues to challenge us, um, uh, at least from the NATO's point of view, and actually sort of makes us think about um, also the different response options, um, with attribution, for example, being one of them, of how to handle uh, that sort of a behavior in a below the threshold uh, manner. Um, I already mentioned the, the different range of, of actors. Um, If I were to sum it up, or if I were to sort of characterize what is happening, I think uh, what we see is is really sort of the attacks becoming more common. Um, Perhaps not necessarily more sophisticated, what I see is sort of not really sort of an exponential growth in zero-day vulnerabilities uh, market, but really the sort of um, uh, the use of the same old uh, Persistency. uh, Persistency, indeed. The same old sort of malware, but refurbished and and used for other purposes. So, more common, uh, perhaps more sophisticated, but certainly more damaging. Uh, And I think part of it is also having to do with just the the fact that the the surface area, if I may call it that way, is getting bigger. We have the Internet of Things and and the rest of it, whereby we, I think, ourselves are also introducing new vulnerabilities to the system, which, of course, is also putting pressure on. uh, at the end of the day, on how do we react to these events? Not only at the technical level, but also at the political level.
0: Let me ask: uh, If there is there any proportion, even if it's more qualitative, between being a subject NATO being subject to targeted attacks or just collateral damage if, uh, from you know uh, those who are spreading their attacks uh, like Tutazimut in all directions? Uh, how how do you do you see it from NATO's point of view?
1: We're very much connected to that ecosphere, so, which means that, I mean, perhaps not surprisingly, I think the, the sort of the vast amount of, of stuff that is happening in our networks is pretty much the same, I think, that you would find also in other uh, sort of um, civilian networks, for example, ransomware. Well, NATO is not going to pay ransom, but it doesn't mean that we don't get hit with it. And indeed, you have um, what I would characterize a sort of a relatively small amount of Um, advanced and and persistent type of activities.
0: And those are targeted for NATO.
1: Indeed. But quite often, all it takes is is one breach in Mm. order to take the system down. Well, fortunately, we haven't had um, any operational impact uh, to NATO networks or NATO activities. Um, But quite often, when you look at the pace of change uh, and really sort of um, where technology is moving and how fast technology is moving, uh, what it tells you really that there isn't an endpoint. So you really have to sort of uh, uh, Upgrade your defenses almost all of the time. You know, build the airplane while you're flying it. And and that and another interesting thing is that I think that the defense doesn't stop at the firewall. It's not only about the perimeter defense. Indeed, it's also about the people. It's about the processes. It's also about how you organize yourself in order to deal with that threat.
0: Speaking about um, public attribution. Um, and um, we both refer to uh, the, the high profile public attribution by especially US and UK, not Pethia, but there were other countries that associated uh, themselves to, to this. Uh, and there were also uh, some other uh, countries like Germany, I think Denmark, Norway last uh, year that uh, uh, went public with attributing some attacks uh, against uh, their um, government systems. Um, my first question is, why did this happen more recently? I mean, last year, this year, not so much before. And um, how important do you think is to speak out when you have the relevant uh, information, data, analysis uh, uh, about this?
1: Well, first and foremost, I think the attribution remains the national prerogative. So right. it, is, it is indeed for the for the nations to make up um, their mind and. and uh, I think a fair amount of political judgment goes into that decision. Uh, Because even, uh, well, when it comes to the attribution at the political level, um, I believe it's not really the same as as something that you would do in a court of law, I mean, uh, at least when it comes to the sort of the the evidence that needs to be presented. Because it is a process, and then you're trying to influence the behavior uh, of of another state uh, that is actually conducting the attacks. Um, uh, So it is. It is a judgment call. It is a sort of a, a, a political decision in this regard, um, it, you know, whether to go public or not, because there are other means of actually affecting and the behavior.
0: Covered messages or? Yeah. Indeed, the
1: yeah. private attribution. Private attribution. Um, you can also just upgrade your defenses without attributing, without actually telling anybody about uh, what is happening. So really, to me, it is about a process. It is about the, the behavior that they are trying to influence. Um, And I think in many ways uh, when we look at the the attribution uh, perhaps really not uh, from NATO's point of view but um, trying to understand the context of what is happening, um, it is very much also I think uh, connected to the the norms of behavior and the norms that should apply in that global cyberspace.
0: So so do you think it's breaking this culture of impunity that some of the threat actors, especially state threat actors, have developed over the years? I believe so.
1: I believe so. I mean uh, when you look at the, the... the sort of the past, uh, past examples, such as the sort of the indictment of PLA uh, by the United States government and really sort of the, the steps that followed, um, it seemed to have worked. So here, too, um, I think what we're seeing is the sort of emerging uh, behavior uh, to really sort of signal back uh, in regards to sort of what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior. Um, and, and I believe this is what we are seeing happening out there in the market.
0: Now, um, going a bit uh, deeper into the situational awareness, cyber situational awareness aspect at at NATO, um, I know there are different uh, levels uh, from um, you know having a malware information sharing uh, platform up to um, you know cyber threat assessment cell work and the intelligence um, sharing um, my um, one one of my uh, my points and I, I use this opportunity also to, to advertise um, a Hudson Institute paper strengthening NATO cyber defenses under US leadership one of the points was to create a joint comprehensive situational awareness and attribution platform at NATO. Do you think this is too far um, stretched? Uh, Is this something that could be pursued uh, in the, let's say, near or medium term future?
1: If you recall your time in the office, indeed, um, I mean, what we tried to do was to really sort of uh, perhaps the sort of the Kevin Costner movie, The Field of Dreams, build it, then they will come, indeed. So what we tried to do was to, to establish these platforms and to establish this sort of, you know, a means to exchange information, to share information, malware information sharing platform, um, also having the RFI process with the allies, but, but also bringing in industry. Uh, and that is important to us because quite a lot of information actually, especially when you're, you're dealing with indicators of compromise does not have to be at the classified level. I mean, in fact, quite often what tends to happen is this over-sanitization or over-classification of events that are happening. So that's why, in order to have that good situational awareness, having multiple fleets, having having multiple sort of um, contributors uh, to that situational awareness, I think, is important. Um, and, and this is what we have tried to do, uh, knowing fully well that at the end of the day, um, Especially when it comes to the classified information sharing, it's, there's a role for allies in this regard uh, to play because NATO is not an intelligence uh, generating uh, enterprise. We rely on, on allied input in this regard. Um, always more can be done, I believe so. Um, for example, um, I think NATO's greatest strength, uh, when you look um, at, at what we have done in the past, has been to sort of serve as a platform. Uh, to either create standards or, you know, really improve interoperability, for example. I believe the same can be done when it actually comes to increasing trust uh, in information sharing in creating these uh, sort of, uh, well, for the lack of a better word, you know, standards or or, or sort of, you know, approaches whereby uh, a greater trust would result and and a greater sort of information sharing could result between allies.
0: In a way you hinted to to, to, uh, um, a concept Sharing interoperability or information interoperability to have information kind of standardized so that. Um, I don't know if it's now it's working? Yeah. Um, so, do you think that uh, benchmarks from this point of view need to be set as well, like uh, the, the standardization of? Uh, information exchange uh, that is necessary for cyber?
1: I think it would certainly help, um, especially and, and coming back to your previous question about the attribution, for example. I think the better we collectively also understand um, so what goes into and, and what do we mean when we see something and when we assess something, um, the more robust mechanism uh, there is. I think you know that doesn't sort of really take away from the sovereignty, uh, from the sort of national and political decisions that need to be made by allies. Um, uh, The more trust there would be in this.
0: Thank you. Moving towards uh, capabilities and cyber defence capabilities, and then skills. Um, NATO is um, having a double uh, function: first to strengthen and develop its own cyber defence capabilities, and then also to create a standardized process of enhancing capabilities of, of allies. And I want to, to ask you to focus on two, two things. When it comes to NATO, um, how strongly you feel that the procurement process in NATO limits the capacity to bring the most updated capabilities? Uh, to the benefit of NATO cyber defense. And then um, when it comes to allied um, capabilities, uh, uh, cyber capability targets are now part of the defense planning process. Uh, and I know there is a new cycle um, of capability targets that has been approved. If you could highlight what are the key elements of these uh, new targets for allies.
1: We,ll starting with the with the sort of the second one, the NDPP next generation capability targets. perhaps uh, for those that are not uh, familiar with the with the NATO process, I mean a lot of acronyms and a lot of abbreviations, but basically it is a it is a mechanism that we use in order to generate forces. Uh, so it is driven um, heavily by the sort of the operational requirements. Words, it is the things that well the the ships, the planes, the tanks, that we need in order to um, really be able to conduct allied uh, operations and missions. And cyber is part of it. Um, so um, what we have tried to do uh, over the years is really to also um, help allies generate their own national cyber capabilities. And uh, But really, I think an, an interesting shift uh, has occurred with us having recognized cyberspace as a domain of operations. Um, And I allude to uh, my previous point in this regard. So instead of really trying to look at the network defense as a phenomenon in itself, what we are now trying to do is really to empower the operational commanders so that the operational commanders would also be able to um, operate in that domain. Uh, That means, uh, for those of you that uh, have a military background, really taking something that traditionally has belonged to the J6 um, shop uh, and, and really trying to sort of um, shifted more to the J3, the operations side, so that, the, like I said, the operational commander would have all of the necessary capabilities. And as part of that mechanism, we are also sort of you know, uh, trying to make that shift at the national level so that the necessary capabilities would enable, would support the J3 shop um, to conduct the operations. Now, when it comes to the pro- uh, procurement and, and acquisitions, I would be intellectually dishonest <laughs> if I didn't uh, didn't um, sort of comment on that, indeed, um, in a situation where really sort of technology is moving very very fast, uh, this is one of the what I would characterize in areas that we're having challenges with. Uh, really, I mean, it is. I mean. It is difficult to be um, honest uh, to ourselves if you're moving um, into new platforms uh, with the Windows XP and all of the old, uh, old stuff still being in use. So um, without actually, I think, focusing on this part and trying to speed it up, um, um, I think it will be very difficult to turn the corner. Now, we have had some success in the past. Um, in Afghanistan, in particular, we had operational requirements whereby we were able to sort of separate Separate certain areas whereby a sort of a, an accelerated acquisition was possible. Um, looking at it from the cyber defense point of view, if we're not able to do the same on the cyber field, I think we will be constantly lagging behind.
0: Thank you for the for the for the sincerity and and, and honesty. And I know that uh, all those who are working on let's say IT-related subjects in NATO feel this uh, this pain. Um, I, for one, uh, was a strong proponent of uh, um, having a really completely different and parallel process for IT procurement than NATO. Uh, you have this five-year cycle for the normal physical platform, which is logical. They don't change as fast. But if you have a five-year uh, cycle for IT, for software, you always have yesterday's technology. So you need to maybe have a five months or six months or, uh, you know, at most, uh, 12 months. um Uh, cycle, so um, I hope decision makers would take this into consideration and actually create a separate um, strand of work, and um, I I think this should be supported by legislators as as well.
1: It's also, I think, well, I'm not an acquisition kind of a person, but I think much also goes into the how acquisition processes themselves work. So instead of going for this big um, sort of uh, decades-long platforms, I think just breaking them apart, uh, uh, being more modular uh, and more agile, and actually sort of delivering things in chunks uh, would help us as well. Um, Delivering, uh, yeah, capabilities as part of bigger platforms, um, you know, decades is is just, no, it's not gonna work for us. But that is an an area of challenge, I I would admit, um, for uh, for the enterprise,
0: uh, for the native enterprise. You touched upon uh, aspects that um have to do with the uh, defense uh, planning and the military planning within the uh, the alliance. And um, I think NATO has become a defense planning domain already for, for a number of, um, of years. And now with the recognition of our operational domain, there's extra focus given to this. But let me ask you uh, um, an aspect uh, that has to do with uh, general culture in, in um, uh, NATO, um, how much do or, or how fast do you think we're moving from um, this traditional um, approach where defense planning is linked to the physical domains, the classical uh, uh, domains, while we see that in the real world the battlefield is increasingly digital. So is the kind of organization, the planning process, the resources involved catching up with the real world or do we need to you know, push further and faster? Uh, so how, how do you see this? Well, I would always like us
1: to be more quicker. Let me put, let me put it this way. Uh, I believe more can be done uh, and, and uh, especially when I look at and, and going back to where we started with the threat landscape I, I think you know, we need to run faster. Uh, that uh, that would be my, my sort of, you know, uh, first sort of initial cut on this uh, on this question. Um, well, at the same time, I have to recognize the fact that uh, during the last four years, and, and you recall it as well, the, that's the journey that we, we took together. Um, we were pushing the enterprise, and uh, indeed quite a lot has been done in this regard. I mean, the recognition of cyberspace as a domain, you know, the, 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 the sort of the delivery of the pledge, et cetera, quite a lot of sort of the initiatives have, have been put in place. To, to the extent that, um, that I would sort of say that NATO as an, as an alliance, NATO as an organization, really, I think, stands at the cutting edge uh, if I were to compare us to our sort of peers um, out there. But more can be done indeed. Um, I think the challenge with cyber quite often tends to be that it's abstract. It is. uh, It it, it is not that something that is tangible. It is sometimes it is. It is difficult to explain. It is difficult to measure. It's difficult to quantify. I mean, um, let me take the cyber defense pledge that we're working on. Quite often, as we do our bilateral meetings with allies, the question comes up. I mean, what does good look like? How much should I spend on cyber? Is there a specific figure? Just like you have 2% uh, for the defence spending, etc. So, I think quite often we're also trying to come to grips um, with the, what the sort of new field, um, what does good look like in this new field, um, and consequently, it, it is sometimes difficult to make the case. Um, but you know, personally speaking, I think you know much more could be done, and uh, of course, I'm sort of I'm tooting my own horn here.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I was he- hesitating to. Uh ask you to, to respond to a question that um, I was uh, being asked in the past, like, what are the cyber equivalents of the the tanks, the missiles, uh, the, the fighter planes in, in the cyber domain? And how do you do the, the force planning uh, in this uh, domain? <laughs> so use your imagination to...
1: You don't, <laughs> That's the right answer. Um, I, I, I think when we're looking at this issue, uh, we would rather sort of concentrate on the, on the effect, effects as such, rather than the classical force generation model. Um, so really, because at the end of the day, what matters, and coming back to the sort of, once again, to the operational commander that needs to deliver effects on the battlefield, um, these will have to come um, from the national um, capabilities, from the NATO force structure, not from the NATO common, uh, command structure. Um, And we will rely, as we move into the future, to the national capabilities, voluntary effects provided to NATO um, on a voluntary basis by nations themselves. So really, it's the effects part uh, that I think uh, matters and not really the sort of the force generation as such. I don't really see us sitting around the table um, and counting the tanks and the planes and what have you, uh, but allies really sort of um, making up their decisions nationally. Uh, What kind of an effect will be provided? as part of the NATO um, AOM.
0: So it's more like the special forces uh, uh, model and so on. Um, You already um, hinted, uh, mentioned, a very important uh, uh, development that came with the recognition of cyber as an operational domain. And this is the uh, work on the um, integration of uh, uh, potential voluntary uh, sovereign contribution um, national uh, cyber assets uh, for the uh, purpose um, of NATO's missions and uh, uh, operations. And this should not be seen as something so different like than, than in the other domains, uh, because neither uh, uh, in neither air or see NATO as an organization uh, really has its own forces. It has a command structure. It's it's a platform, but actually it's the uh, the NATO cap the allied capabilities that uh, are harnessed, and so this is should be pretty much the same in the in the cyber domain. Um, but um, uh, what I wanted to to ask you to to was to dwell a bit deeper in two important announcements that were made public. One was at the defense ministry in November, where the secretary general um, announced that. Uh, a framework of political legal principles to integrate such uh, national cyber contributions within NATO has been developed. So just describe the the, the framework. And then in the February ministerial, he announced uh, uh, the setup of um, a cyber operations center Uh, At the level of the command structure, and this is the first time NATO has a cyber dedicated entity within the command structure. So, what's the catch? Uh, What's the news uh, with these two announcements? And how much do you think they will be like uh, part of the deliverables package for the next for the upcoming summit? Let me put put that into Um, context.
1: In many ways, it is a really a logical conclusion, a logical next step uh, of us uh, having recognized cyberspace as a domain. Because to us, it is, it is part of a, a bigger effort. Um, and really, I mean, once again, for those that have served in the military, I mean, we're looking at really all of the aspects of .MLBFI. I mean, what sort of a doctrine should we have? What sort of an organizational construct? How should we organize ourselves? Um, what sort of training, education, um, I mean, how to finance that field, etc. And there are some changes, indeed, that um, have already occurred and that will occur uh, over time. Um, indeed, one of them um, was the decision to create the Cyber Operations Center. So this is not a NATO Cyber Command. This is not the, the road or the path that we're taking, but really a, um, a an entity in the Allied Command Operations that is meant to enable NATO operational commander to um, really execute missions in that domain. Um, and as part of that, uh, part of that mandate, indeed, and, and as discussed by the NATO Secretary General, we have developed a set of principles um, that are meant to assist uh, us in actually sort of um, implementing that decision. So consequently, NATO will not have its own sort of offensive capabilities, but will have to rely on on, on nation's on allies providing these um, um, capabilities on a voluntary basis to NATO. Um, work is ongoing in this regard, and um, and you alluded to the summit. and. Indeed, we are looking at uh, how to put all of the sort of other relevant pieces uh, so that the puzzle is is complete, so to speak, and that we can actually sort of um, have that operational commander uh, be empowered, but also have all of the sort of the mechanisms, the the necessary principles and organizational structure in place um, for these missions to take place. So this um, really in the context of a broader uh, transformation that is ongoing uh, is the sort of the step that uh, I think we are ready to take uh, in the next uh, sort of foreseeable future.
0: So, so the cyber uh, part will be uh, an important item as part of NATO's defense deterrence uh, posture. Absolutely, that will be updated uh, at this uh, at this upcoming summit.
1: Indeed, uh, absolutely so. Uh, but let me also reiterate that, that this does not change the defensive mandate of NATO, and this doesn't really change, I think, the focus that we will continue to pay not only internally inside the organizations, but but also with allies on resilience. At the end of the day, first and foremost, this this really sort of uh, you need to make sure that uh, that you're able to sort of make yourself less attractive target, if I, if I sure. may say so. You have to sort of upgrade your defenses, and because quite often, I think, what tends to be forgotten is that. And especially in this domain, we are no longer sort of operating uh, with an assumption that, you know, you have your, your, your castle with a moat around it. Um, I would put it to you that, uh, you know, detection has replaced the defense as a strategy. So you should actually sort of think that somebody is operating in your networks, and then the question is how quickly are you able to catch that malicious behavior? And how robust are your networks? How quickly are you able to sort of uh, reconstitute, recover? Uh, in this regard, so resilience will continue to be the central piece uh, for us as we as we move uh, move ahead and 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 also sort of you know implement our decision to recognise cyberspace as a domain. But there will be pieces uh, that we will also sort of um, add to that uh, existing basket, that existing toolbox that we have.
0: I do not want to end, and I have just a couple of minutes, and then I will open it uh, up for, for questions from the floor. I don't want to lose the. Um, importance, the idea of um, developing um, skills, the training, education, and the exercise part uh, in this field, uh, and uh, also another aspect uh, is the, the development of partnerships, uh, knowing that uh, uh, cyber defense is a team sport by, by definition. So um, what's the, the news in terms of uh, uh, training and exercising? and uh, in terms of uh, deepening and uh, expanding the partnerships of NATO? Um,
1: I would put it to you that one of the main challenges that we have is not really technology. It's actually people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as part of the pledge discussions, I mean, uh, what the picture that we see emerging, and I suspect that uh, many in this room <coughs> also agree to it, is that we haven't really reached the equilibrium point, whereby the, you know we have this sort of nice balance between the supply and demand. No, this is not the case. I think demand, you know, is, is far greater than the supply. Uh, the, everybody's after the same sort of people, same, same skill set, uh, same talent, uh, and that is a challenge. Um, so we have different, uh, different sort of programs in place in order to really sort of um, help with the supply side. Um, uh, and when we look at it at the national level, it is also interesting that, well, it, it is contextual. Much depends on, on what kind of a skill set are you after and then what do you want to use it for. Um, so we have been able to identify some national, interesting national best practice uh, when it comes to how to recruit talent and how to retain talent. Because quite often, this is not about actually money. This is about the mission. Uh, this is also about certification and training and education and the rest of it. Um, so this is the sort of the. part that we try to play uh, in identifying that best practice and and sort of with the hope that it will help allies at the national level. Um, In terms of exercises, um, here too we're trying to turn a corner, and and instead of sort of treating cyber as something separate or unique, um, we want cyber, for example, to be integrated into all of the NATO exercises that we are conducting, all the way from the – uh, from the strategic level, the crisis management exercise that the Council um, uh, sort of does on an annual basis, but also down to the sort of the operational and the tactical level. And, and partnerships are critical. So industry involvement, for example, in, in creating realistic access, but also EU. Uh, and here EU is, a, is an important partner in this regard. We have the technical agreement in place to exchange uh, technical information with yes. them. But the EU uh, quite often also brings an important regulatory aspect to the game um, that NATO doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's, for example, increasing national um, cyber resilience through initiatives such as the Network Information Security Directive, NIST this directive in the EU, and what have you, um, we see it very much as a sort of a complementary track uh, that this one particular partner uh, to us uh, plays.
0: And what about raising what I would call the, the cyber IQ at the level, at the policy level, those who are involved in the policy in uh, legal matters, uh, uh, does does NATO do, do enough to, you know, elevate this understanding and, uh, again, cyber IQ? Uh. Once again, I'm a very ambitious person, so I would
1: have to say that more can be done. Um, I'm not being fully aware um, that over the, I think over the last two or three years, I mean, the amount of you know the amount of time that the Council has dedicated um, at NATO to the cyber issue has more than tripled. I think, you know, the, the discussion is ongoing, so, so, so that's a good thing. But um, once again, the, the, the technology keeps you know, moving ahead, um, and uh, quite often I think more can be done also to really bring in the strategic level uh, sort of decision makers. I mean, EU, for example, had this wonderful cyber exercise under the um, Estonian EU presidency. So I mean, these sorts of initiatives, I think, go a long way uh, in order to sort of raise the, um, what I have said, something that tends to be very abstract, um, that is intangible um, to the senior decision level, um, senior sort of uh, policymakers. Um, That I think is, is, one needs to be clever in regards to how and when. To bring in the sort of the, the, the senior policymakers into this.
0: So you're confident that cyber is actually uh, moving to to reaching uh, uh, the level when where it's get the key strategic role that it deserves on the NATO agenda. Yes and no.
1: More can be done, uh, but, but I think we have made good progress, um, especially under your leadership. So,
0: okay. Um, well, uh, so on this. Um, both optimistic and realistic uh, uh, note, let me, let me stop with my uh, my own uh, set of questions. I would have um, more, but uh, I would like to open the floor um, and uh, let's start with uh, the right lady in front row. And I would kindly ask you to introduce yourselves and, of course, uh, put forward some quick articulate questions.
2: I'm Mitzi Wertheim with the Naval Postgraduate School and was fortunate enough to be in defense when all of this was getting started. Nobody had any idea it would blossom into what it is. The question I have is about compatibility. I remember when the Navy and the Air Force were in a joint game and they realized they couldn't talk to one another because our buying process wasn't allowed, we were not allowed to create a winner. So we had to get all these others. So how do you deal with that when we're now dealing with this on a global basis?
1: Please, um, Well, NATO doesn't really address the, sort of, the acquisition and, and procurement issues at the national level. Indeed, what we try to do is to make sure that uh, systems are interoperable, interoperable at the NATO level. Um, so when we build, for example, Uh, The current initiative underway is the the, the FMN, the Future Missions Network. Uh, What we want to make sure is that um, allies can actually sort of plug into that network and plug into that system, um, and that they can talk to each other. So rather than sort of trying to deal with issues at the national level, we leave it to allies themselves and and look at the the broad sort of enterprise level. Um, What sort of interface is needed in order, you know, if you will, a a plug-and-play environment in order for us to be able to execute our missions. I mean, the, the same happened, for example, in Afghanistan uh, during the ISAF mission with the AMN, Afghanistan Mission Network, um, that was run by NATO that we were responsible for, but basically that allowed for allies to plug into that environment. Um, so um, we're, I guess, if, once again, if I were to be intellectually honest with you, we're circumventing the question a little bit and looking at it at the sort of the, at the very broad NATO enterprise level.
0: Uh, Thank you, Um, John Heffern. John used to be on the North Atlantic Council every now and then, so. Uh, Thank you, Ambassador Carl. Welcome back to Washington. Thanks
3: to Hudson Institute to bring you back to us uh, uh, on a regular basis. Look forward to working with you here. Uh, Foreign Service officer, I'm now at Georgetown, and I was deputy uh, at NATO uh, and had the honor to sit on the council occasionally when my boss was was out of town. Christian, good to see you again. Question is, uh, you, you, I was struck by a couple of comments you made referring to, to cyber as, a, as largely a below the threshold threat and that attribution is largely a national uh, prerogative, which suggests that Article 5 elements of this are, are not in the forefront of our thinking on it now. I mean, this is not a hypothetical problem. I mean, we had the, what is clearly, I think, a hostile state attack on an ally in 2007. Um, What is sort of the Article 5 thinking here?
1: Good question. Thank you, John. Um, um, Well, perhaps not surprisingly, when when we look at the applicability of Article 5, I think we want to maintain constructive ambiguity. I mean, there's no automaticity uh, to it. There are no thresholds. I mean, it is basically a sort of a judgment call. at the NAC level, that needs to be sort of made. Uh, I would put it to you largely uh, depending on the consequences, um, how severe the consequences uh, are, and then you know then basically it's just applying that political judgment into that situation. Um, so in this regard, it's it's constructive ambiguity. Um, what of course quite often poses the challenge is is the sort of um, is, is that you know sort of you know challenge that I mentioned um, that quite often. Um, the events that we see happening all actually sort of take place below the threshold, um, whereby it is – I mean, you do not necessarily want to bring a gun to a, a knife fight, if I may say so. But there are other tools that can be used. Um, these can be diplomatic. Uh, these can be informational, um, et so it. it I mean, NATO has been doing peacekeeping operations without there, you know, necessarily having been a, a global war taking place, if I may use that analogy. So I think there are, there are tools available um, also linked to um, other uh, sort of activities pursued, for example, by the European Union or by allies themselves quite often uh, have to be taken into account when we're trying to de-escalate uh, the situation. Uh, but Article 5 by no means is off the table. In fact, what we have recognized is that um, collective defense applies in cyberspace. And we are ready to, I mean, really to go full throttle, if I may use that analogy. Um, but for the time being, and largely also because the it is a sort of a fast-evolving uh, landscape, um, it, it remains sort of constructively ambiguous as to sort of when that declaration would have to then take place. And, and, and this is the question that I quite often uh, get, and, and people People quite often also wonder that, you know, do you have to sort of respond to a cyber what cyber means or, or what that respond response looked like and and what does this mean, uh, you know, for Article Five, et cetera. Um, I think here it's quite instrumental to sort of look back at at what what happened uh, post 9 and and our response actually sort of, uh, it it wasn't. Um, When you look at the time aspect of it, it it took a couple of weeks for us to reach that inclusion. It wasn't symmetric. I mean, it was the deployment of AWACS in order to assist with the patrolling of the skies here in North America. So, really, even when it comes to the sort of the potential invocation of Article 5, I think different and almost all of the tools in the toolbox are available um, if and and when we try to sort of de escalate the situation or to respond to what has taken place. but I suspect that as we go um, and, uh, uh, go into the sort of you know uh, into the summit and, and also the next summit, there will continue to be events that I think will continue to sort of challenge us in terms of um, below threshold, above the threshold. What does it mean, uh, and what is the best way, politically speaking, to manage the uh, manage the sort of uh, the response and you know the the malicious sort of actor on the other side?
0: There was a question in the front row, and then I will turn to the other side, please.
1: Adam Powell from the University of Southern California. Uh, In this gray area,
4: as you uh, termed it at the beginning, uh, the cyber attacks are, uh, military cyber attacks are only part of what's happening. And
1: we have infrastructure uh, here in the United States. For example, electric power generation is a state function, not a national function. We have elections very much in the news uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, where they are often local, state, or regional issues. To what extent is NATO cyber defense either coordinating with or communicating with these other civilian areas that are at risk? That's an easy one. I, I, I could actually respond to you by saying very simply that uh, NATO's primary task is the defense of its own networks, and when it comes to the protection of national networks, it's the responsibility of the allies. But I, I want to give you a, a sort of, a, I think, a longer explanation than that. Um, I think, as you know, quite often it takes two to tango. It takes the attacker to attack and the defender to defend. Um, but what I found a bit concerning um, is, for example, uh, the events that happened in, in, in Georgia, for example, in Atlanta. I mean, really, sort of the ransomware having, having a really widespread a, a impact in this regard. Um, so on one hand, yes, indeed, I understand that sometimes when it comes to um, – you mentioned elections, but also critical infrastructure, uh, not necessarily sort of a, a federal-level issue, uh, but the impact uh, can actually be a strategic one. Um, our response to it um, has been to create, as, as I alluded to earlier, a cyber defense pledge whereby we really try to sort of um, focus on and helping allies to increase their national cyber resiliency. Um, and our sort of main aim here is to sort of trying to see what is the best practice in different places in different countries. When it comes to the, to the protection of critical infrastructure, or when it comes to, for example, um, education, training, recruitment of skill, etc., cetera, um, knowing fully well that it's, it is contextual, and it is then up to allies themselves to sort of put in place the, the, the kind of a sort of mechanism that is fit for purpose at the national level, not to really for NATO to grade somebody or to, to develop a standard in this regard. Um, Personally speaking, when I, when I look at what is happening, um, I, I quite often feel that um, uh, not all market players are, are sort of, you know, uh, making progress um, as fast as they should. I'm a bit concerned about small and medium-sized enterprises, for example, because quite often cyber tends to require, well, money. Um, and so quite often the MNCs, the multinational companies, tend to do better. Than some of the small and medium sized enterprises, you a know, mom and pop store out there in the sort of you know street corner. So, but fortunately, and once again, uh, trying to be intellectually honest, this is not something that we have to worry about. This belongs to the allies at, and, at the national level. What we try to do, of course, is to, like I said, you know, identify you know these things, you know, the mechanisms that work that then hopefully can be made use of by allies at the
0: national level. Just to have a, a quick follow up, since um, was also part of uh, this development of the Cyber Defense Pledge. Uh, Cyber, de- Cyber Defense Pledge was um, a political instrument, actually, to help widen a bit the mandate of NATO. The mandate of NATO was focusing on its own networks, and mainly creating standards for the, let's say, military and government networks of its members, uh, not towards critical infrastructure, but with the pledge. Uh, and assuming this by heads of state and government, it was like pushing the mandate forward towards uh, setting some best practices, standards, and raising the strategic attention for this critical infrastructure, upon which each country's defense and NATO actually defense ultimately uh, depends. So it was, uh, as I said, political instrument to go beyond this dilemma, how you, you focus on your main mandate, which is military defense, but knowing that you rely on some civilian um, uh, assets and so on. There was a question in the back, and then I'll come Come also to Peter.
4: Please. Uh, my name is Roger Cochetti, and I work with private equity in the technology sector, and I wanted to come back to a subject that you did your best to deal with several times in the in the earlier conversation, and that is resource allocation, funding, m- m- quantification, that sort of stuff. And I don't think we can really abandon the topic for two reasons. First, NATO has explained its mission and its resource requirements for 50 years based on quantification. We endless little tanks on one side and little tanks on the other side and little soldiers on one side and little soldiers on the other. That's how it explains to people who control funding what funding is needed. And secondly, it's obviously very gray, but every billion euros that NATO spends on cyber means at least there's one euro less that it has to spend on tanks. So there is some trade-off in in, in resource. It's not one-to-one, but it's something. For those reasons, I'd I'd, I'd want to return to the subject and maybe try it in three ways that might make it easier. First, if we pretended for a moment that cyber consisted of three categories, hardware, software, and talent, um, how would you compare NATO with Russia? second could you give any kind of estimate and obviously we all know that on the russian side there's non-state actors or state actors there's everything but on the nato side there's non-state actors and state actors and everything so some comparison in budget between nato and and russia in cyber military cyber defense and then thirdly and most maybe most easily is there any area where you would trade NATO capabilities for Russian capabilities in this field. That's that's a very easy way to sort of get right. Is there anything where you'd say, hey, I'd rather, I'll take what they have as opposed to what I have, and then we know that that's, that's a hot issue. So
0: thank you. So you have the opportunity to generate some real news now <laughs> Yeah, answer all these questions. <laughs> Not.
1: <laughs> um. When it comes to the resource allocation, indeed, I mean the difficulty that we have had in, in my shop, um, and and this is the, this part of the reason is is why we're sort of you know shying away from the quantitative stuff, is that we ourselves quite often do not know what good looks like. Um, I, we cannot give a figure, um, and if we did, that figure would be dishonest because it's not only about the amount of money that you're spending, it's also how you're spending it. So that's why quite often when, for example, as part of the NTPP that I mentioned, um, but also as part of the pledge, um, we want to focus on uh, qualitative uh, aspects of it and really sort of the, the effects part of it. So instead of telling um, an ally um, how many people should work in your national cert, um, we focus, for example, quite often on the effects part of it. Um, your ability to uh, monitor the network 24-7, to, to detect anomalous behavior, etc., et just as an example. Um, how you do it and how you figure it out uh, at the national level is really the responsibility of, of allies themselves. So that's first. Um, the, the, the really sort of the qualitative rather than quantitative angle to it. And if somebody comes up with a, with a number, I would be very suspicious. Um, Watch the space um, because at least when it comes to resource allocation, what we see is also an upward trend. So the pledge is having an impact. Um, We are currently planning an event on the 15th of May in Paris with a separate um, uh, sort of speech by the Secretary General in this regard. Um, So there seems to be an effect uh, when it comes to the pledge, uh, at least when it comes to resource allocation. So um, it seems that we are getting um, to the sort of the decision makers, and that more attention is being paid, also when it comes to sort of actually allocating money in order to improve things. When it comes to comparison between NATO and Russia, it's a bit difficult uh, because uh, when it comes to um, the numbers, I mean, uh, it, it's a bit opaque when it comes to you know what is it that I'm comparing uh, myself to. Um, quite often, it, uh, I think it ends up being sort of apples and oranges. I mean. Uh, it's a difficult one to make um, I do believe um, that if we were to you know hypothetically speaking compare ourselves um, there is one great strength um, that that we do um, and and that's innovation it's the sort of the really not only the innovative spirit but really the human talent that I think provides that competitive advantage um, and I'm not only talking about the, the number of Nobel Prize winners but really sort of Innovating and and sort of, you know, creating that new technology, I think that's the sort of that's perhaps the biggest competitive advantage that we have. So I'd I'd rather like to sort of um, look at the positive side rather than the negative side. You know, what is it that we don't that they do? Um, I think that's the sort of real advantage that we have in this game.
0: Not really not at all factor in St. Petersburg uh, please
2: thank you uh, Marisa Lino with Northrop Grumman and I'm also uh, happen to be the head of the u uh, s delegation to the NATO industrial advisory group with the NAIC. Um our friends in Turkey appear to be poised to complete the purchase of s 400 system from Russia. Does this pose, in your opinion, any particular cyber threats for the uh, for NATO?
0: It's another one of those. <laughs> yeah, but you can only focus on the cyber threats, so that's easy. That should be easier. Yes, <laughs>
1: I'm not familiar with the S-400 as such, um, but I would imagine that it would be difficult, very difficult, uh, to integrate that into um, the kind of the system that we have at NATO. Oh,
2: I'm sorry. I I don't assume that they would integrate it. I don't think it would be possible. I agree with that. But just the presence of it, sorry, just the presence of it uh, in conjunction with other systems. Is I think a concern, no?
1: Well, it is really the sort of the responsibility of that particular ally to to make that decision and and also sort of um, to live with the consequences. Um, uh, when it comes to sort of acquiring capabilities at the national level, it is a national prerogative. Um, however, and uh, sort of going back to my previous points, when it comes to actually uh, making the system interoperable, we have to be aware uh, that there are. Uh, there are consequences. Some things are just impossible or difficult uh, to integrate into that sort of uh, common framework that we are developing.
0: Please. There was another question in the logo. Uh,
1: Matthew Hawkins from Aiken Gump. Uh, thank you, Christian, for being here today. I appreciate
4: it. Um, I want to go back to your human talent line. I, I really uh, enjoyed your example about building the airplane while flying it. Um, and you accurately stated that you know people are the biggest challenge for, for you guys. So how crucial is it, for in your opinion, uh, that NATO members train, upskill, certify uh, their people so that we can keep
1: that airplane airborne? Very important, indeed. Um, but I also have to sort of um, be honest. I mean, when I look at the different initiatives that have been put in place, um, they, they are very encouraging. I mean, everybody does it in their own way. So um, some run you know, summer boot camps, um, some run sort of open open source sort of uh, recruitment where everybody can apply, and then after you pass a series of tests, I mean, you could actually sort of become a, a hacker for hire, for example, working for a government, etc. cetera. Um, so different initiatives have been put in place. Um, I'm just wondering whether this will be enough given the really sort of the the, the demand out there in the market. Um, because at the end of the day, I don't really think that the, that the problem here is, like I said, technology. Um, the problem is... is is people and and policy. How do we organize ourselves? How do we have the right policies in place? And how do we bring the right kind of people uh, uh, to stay with us? So it's recruitment and retention. Um, I mean, you can also outsource, I guess, um, chunks of it uh, to private industry in order to fulfill that function. uh, But you have to also figure out what that means to you. And and what functions do you then sort of outsource? And then what do you keep it for yourself? Um, Different national best practice in this regard. Um, There's not sort of one size that fits all. Um, But um, I mean coming back to my previous point about the innovation I think it's the sort of the the human angle, the talent uh, that really provides us with that competitive advantage. Um, Quite often what you see is that once we're able to sort of roll out the product or a technology it is quickly copied um, and then implemented um, in some other place. Uh, But it's a difficult one to copy human beings. Um, So it's It's what we bring to this game, I think, that that provides
0: us with that advantage. Passing the floor to my good friend and colleague, uh, Peter Flory, I can't help myself of thinking about this uh, country song, I was country when country wasn't cool. So Peter was focusing or doing cyber when cyber wasn't as cool as today. Uh, because he, he at that time, uh, the, the cyber policy was uh, addressed in the defense investment division. So Peter, with this uh, setting, you know, we have the floor for the question.
5: Thank, thank you very much, Sören. Um, you, you're the man who made it cool. <laughs> no.
1: um,
5: the uh, actually, when both of you opened the uh, opened the event, your your discussion of the evolution of what NATO focused on in cyber was actually very telling. It reminded me of of. When I was there, which started just a few weeks before the attack on Estonia, um, uh, this was one of a number of dossiers that I had that within a few weeks of my arriving suddenly, you know, and I'm not going to pretend that I predicted this uh, myself, uh, quickly took off in importance and uh, obviously quickly became a main topic, and in terms of the involvement of the Council, I don't know if I ever would have gotten to talk to the Council about cyber, but all of a sudden I was briefing the Council several times a year on it. Um, but the uh, the other point in terms of the evolution is that we were focused, uh, as you said, uh, Christian, on on primarily technology uh, and technological approaches to the security and integrity of, of operational systems, uh, the military in particular, but also the civilian. But I remember sitting around and talking um, about one of our nightmares, which was that, and this came after the Georgia events, uh, you know, what if during the Georgia events, somebody had gotten into the NATO website and planted a false story. You know, NATO invokes Article 5, uh, planning to send troops to Georgia. Well, you know, things were to hit the fan in a big way then, and I, and I confess, we were, we were not, we were imagining, but we really weren't thinking in terms of the weaponization of information and false information uh, the way we've seen it uh, recently. In terms of your your acquisition uh, challenges, this was one of the many things I tried and failed to fix when I was at NATO headquarters. Um, Basically there were a lot of reform agendas, and this one didn't quite make it. I hope that somebody will come back to it. Uh, You know, I think the the challenge in this area, and we really beat our heads against the wall, I remember saying after Estonia, okay, we've got to accelerate NSERC, which is the NATO cyber defense uh, system, and being told, Sir, we'll be lucky if we're only X years late. And I said, oh, that that is not going to work. I'm not going to go to the NAC and, and tell them that." So we were able to catch it up somewhat. But it was, what was striking was the inability of the system to adjust to what was clearly a new reality. And there are a couple of reasons. One is the process, uh, which is uh, very diffuse, and where responsible where authority and and uh, 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 responsibility are. Not off, are often not in the same place. Another part is simply the role of nations. I mean, this is not something when NATO money is spent, uh, the nations, they like to keep a close eye on that, and that's perfectly legitimate. But at the end of the day, particularly with fast-breaking technology, um, there is a tendency sometimes, you know, for perfectly good reasons of sort of quality control and, and oversight, and sometimes for more invidious industrial competition or other reasons where the nations interfere. And there actually is a question in this. Uh, the, the question I would have is, given how much time has elapsed, given the seriousness of the threat, uh, is there any progress uh, uh, is there any progress uh, uh, possible in either a solution, like Ambassador Dukaru suggests, of having sort of a separate track, or uh, some variation on that that would basically say to the nations, look, there's some things that have to happen quicker than you're letting them happen. Uh, And, you know, we promise to, uh, uh, you know, to do our homework, and and you obviously aren't going to have it happen without national oversight. Uh, But at the end of the day, we need to take this out of, there's a a couple of particular technical groups where things would often go to die. Um, And I'm just curious to see if there's been any progress made or envisioned uh, in that regard. Uh, And the second second question is more political. In in response to the uh, previous question, uh, there's nothing that Russia has that I particularly uh, envy uh, from the perspective of NATO, except for maybe one thing, which is agility and decision-making. Uh, and basically, uh, there's a big difference between uh, the knack uh, and the space between Mr. Putin's left ear and his right ear, which is where a lot of Russian decisions get get made. Um, one of the... Uh, uh, one of the things that we tried to emphasize when I was there was the importance of exercises. I know you have taken that uh, much further than we ever got it, and particularly the importance of exercises that actually stress decision making with difficult and ambiguous situations, which is kind of the essence of what we're what we're talking about here. And to the extent you uh, can talk about it, I'd be curious to uh, to see how much progress has been made in that regard. Thank you very much.
0: Christian and this would probably be the last question on, on acquisitions.
1: Um, uh, as you know, uh, and indeed, I, I was glad to host you back in Tallinn when you came over with the with the DPPC. I remember it well. Um, um, w- well, what it is is basically trying to get to a good balance between actually sort of looking at the operational requirements, uh, things that we need and, and we need quickly, and and balance this with the sort of nations and the sort of national oversight, political oversight, etc. So. It's always a tricky issue. Um, what I can say is that um, I mean, question is asked, and then we're actively discussing this. Um, watch the space. I guess is the sort of my response on this one. Um, when it comes to the agility in decision making, um, indeed, uh, th- this is a benefit, but it, it can also be a drawback because I mean, it can also result in in a sort of quick miscalculation that will actually escalate, a, uh, sometimes to strategic blunders. So it's. I see sort of benefits in both both models uh, where you know you're able to perhaps uh, make decisions quickly um, versus in a sort of system whereby you have to balance your interest um, against those of others that slows it down but actually sort of make sure that at the end of the day you you get to where you want to be without actually making mistakes um, so it is contextual is what I'm trying to say it really depends on on the, the circumstances um, and when it comes to um, allied uh, decision-making, the agility of decision-making. Um, I think the structures are there, you know, going back to the sort of the field of dreams. I mean, that that baseball sort of uh, field, it, it's there. So quite often it depends on how allies want to play ball uh, and how, how you know, how quickly do you want to move things forward. Um, it, it really sort of, to me, boils down to the political will uh, and, and really sort of negotiations in this regard of how that how the baseball field is, is being used. Um, that's, that, to me, sort of, um, I have seen things move fast. I have seen things move uh, move perhaps not as fast as they could be. Um, so really, it's, it's as good as allies make it, would be my response.
0: And was <laughs> OK. So then very quick ones. One, two, please.
5: Hi, I'm Nick lyserson I work for Congressman Langevin. Uh, I have a quick question about one of the things that we've been focusing on on the Hill is supply chain cybersecurity risk management. And I think it must be particularly difficult for NATO because part of your supply chain is all of these allies that are going to work in a joint environment um, that might not have a handle on their own supply chain risk. So might be they might be bringing vulnerabilities to the table that they don't even know about. So how do you manage that when you want to have a plug and play interoperable
1: environment but you don't necessarily know what vulnerabilities are coming to the table? That's a tricky one. Um, I think quite often it, it depends also on, on the kind of the system or the, the kind of a sort of device or you know the, what we're talking about. Um, quite often it is easiest to just to rely on, on the sort of the national uh, standard, on a national decision that has been made in, in this regard, instead of sort of trying to come up with a NATO standard or a NATO sort of requirement for the supply chain. Um, but that is easier said than done. And I recognize that when you look at the global supply chain, also at the national level, um, it is difficult uh, to identify what, you know, what parts come from where and then how do you certify something. Um, uh, we quite often do not have to answer that question at the NATO level. It, we rely on allies answering that question, so I keep my fingers for for
0: you. Uh, the, the the truth is that the supply chain requirement in the NATO defense uh, cyber among the cyber defense capability targets uh, is uh, actually the most difficult to achieve according to the responses that we get from each and every nations. For the NATO systems, we had the NATO Office of Security, who has very clear standards. So any system that comes under the uh, you know in the headquarters go through a kind of really tough screening, uh, screening process and so on, uh, but to have this, you know, disseminated to all allies is, is a difficult uh, uh, task, especially since it's a moving target, there are new technologies. So um, this one, I think we had the first time this capability target established in 2013, and it's still the most difficult to achieve at the level in uh, each and every nation. There was one quick, quick one here, and then uh, I'm trying to wrap it up. So. It's a pity not to give the chance for such really very interesting uh, questions.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Peter and I'm from the Russian embassy here in Washington. So uh, first of all, thanks a lot for for a very nice presentation. Uh, We heard a lot about attribution of the attacks today. Uh, Unfortunately, we haven't seen any proofs to that. Uh, but uh, you described it quite well today, saying that it was a political decision of some countries. But my question is in regard to another thing. Uh, as you well aware, all the best and probably the most effective disarmament treaties were done, or yeah, they were done during the Cold War, when Soviet Union and the United States and NATO we were talking to each other all these treaty duties made our world a more safe place right now we're talking about cyberspace there are several initiatives from the russian side including the code of conduct uh, or code of yeah we can call it code of conduct of responsible behavior of the states in cyberspace there is also an initiative which is called the united nations convention on cyber crimes Unfortunately, we do not have a feedback from our colleagues. So in this regard, there is just one question. Don't you think that probably we should start dialogue on cyberspace instead of uh, blaming each other for for everything, but just to start dialogue, to discuss everything, just for the experts to sit down and work out rules of behavior, norms of behavior? Probably it will make uh, world a more safe place than just?
0: Thank thank you so much for the question, um, because I think this is important, especially since, uh, for example, NATO has been uh, part of this dialogue, at least in the OEC framework, uh, while not being a member of the OEC, but being invited to these discussions, and also um, in the uh, UNGG uh, process where um, it has been both briefed and also invited to have uh, comments and so So maybe you can refer to to this, Christian, because uh, this is also part of stability, as it was mentioned. Uh, uh, my short answer
1: would be would be very simple, but you wouldn't like it. Um, and the short answer is that you know NATO doesn't really create norms, and we do not have a role in norms creation as an organization. We have expressed support. Uh, To the norms uh, of responsible state behavior, as it indeed would contribute to a more stable, secure um, uh, cyberspace. Uh, So, initiatives that are in place in this regard, indeed, uh, the OSCE with the CPM, the confidence-building mechanism development, as well as the UNGGE, are important fora uh, in this regard. Uh, Bearing in mind fully that NATO doesn't really, as an organization, doesn't have a role in this regard. so we were also a bit, I guess, disappointed that the last UNGGE last year did not deliver, um, uh, because I think it would have been useful, uh, also from the norms development uh, point of view. Um, personally speaking, when I, when I look at the developments that are to take place, um, you have, I think, United Nations Secretary General announcing that the debate uh, would take place uh, in United Nations. But I think it it remains to be seen what form this dialogue will take. I mean, will there be the next UNGG? I mean, how that uh, debate will actually take place remains to be seen. Um, I mentioned that it takes two to tango. I mean, uh, in this case, it takes more than two to tango. It takes actually sort of all of the different players to really sort of agree to that way ahead um, in order to you know come to a sort of an understanding of what sort of norms. Uh, should there be uh, in international fora? Um, I completely agree that the dialogue is needed, um, but I think also political will uh, is needed in order to make progress in this regard. Uh, so, really, I mean, once again, from NATO point of view, as an organisation, we do not have a role. It, it is sort of it's nations uh, that are subjects to an um, sort of international relations, nations that create the norm, uh, nations that create the international law. Uh, so, um, also. Russian Federation has a role to play in this regard.
0: And and by the way, uh, while not being a norm-setting organization, I should emphasize that uh, at the Wales Summit, uh, when NATO linked cyber defense with collective defense, at the same time it recognized politically uh, the applicability of international law in uh, cyberspace. Uh, which was in itself a political statement of prevention, preferring to have a governed state and this uh, space, I'm sorry, govern cyberspace and uh, actually prevent, avoid confrontation rather than uh, being, uh, let's say, pushed into um, defending allies in such a confrontation. And also, as I mentioned, um, we were, Meta was always open uh, in this uh, dialogue and one of the uh, interesting um, uh, dialogue uh, between organisations was between NATO and OEC. Both OEC coming to brief uh, NATO on the confidence-building measures that have been developed, and the other around NATO briefing have been twice at, at in Vienna on what its policy um, is like and how it fits with the applicability of international law. And last but not least, the fact that the Centre of Excellence in Tallinn, which is not NATO's own center. It's accredited by NATO. It's owned by the, the member states, but uh, it has uh, developed this um, resource, which is the Talent Manual. It's uh, it's not a treaty. It's not uh, something recognized, not even by NATO members, but it's, it's actually uh, expertise, a kind of compendium of international expertise uh, in this field. Well, um, since I don't see any other uh, questions, uh, and before, before thanking Christian, since we are in, in Washington uh, in, in, in the US, uh, let me just end on one uh, question. Is the is, uh, um, uh, US doing enough in the NATO framework to you know, project its leadership, bring its contribution, uh, both in the political debate, but also in the kind of uh, more, more, uh, let's say, uh, uh, action plan implementation uh, phase on, on, on cyber defense? and by the way i'm doing this also to advertise as i said a, a study published by the huston institute uh, on strengthening NATO cyber defense under um, us leadership and of course this was also consulted and also provided to, uh, to nato as also as a resource for the upcoming summit
1: united states remains a, a critical ally mm-hmm. in all of the sort of consultations and discussions that we have in this regard um, allow me to also take this opportunity to really recognize the the U.S. sort of service members and, and women uh, and their families for all of the sacrifices that they have made um, uh, to um, sort of alliance operations and missions. I mean, the uh, United States is a critical um, ally in this regard. Um, what can I say? I mean, quite often when I, I mean, it's it sort of uh, recently when I flew, flew over um, and I, I watched the darkest hour of the, uh, the yeah. movie. Uh, it sort of reminded me of Winston Churchill's uh, quote that, you know, the only thing that is worse than, than fighting with allies is to fight without allies. Um, so it, it, is, uh, it is, there is friction in the system. I mean, it takes time to, to come to an agreement, to come to a consensus, but at the end of the day, I mean, when I look at this really sort of grand alliance, and I would say that arguably the most successful military alliance in history, I think we have the elements. Uh, that it takes to continue uh, to sort of keep it uh, in that way. And I really look forward also to the U.S. role in this regard.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed, um, uh, Christian. This was a delight. This reminded me of uh, our uh, brainstorming sessions um, yeah, some some year ago, a couple of months um, ago. And I want to praise once more uh, your um, uh, leadership uh, and um, your um, a role as uh, a key player in the management of both policy development and its uh, implementation in NATO headquarters. It's good to have you back in Washington. I did not go through the whole CV. Christian mentioned he was, uh, has studied both at West Point and at the School of Foreign Service, and he has also been a defense counselor at the uh, uh, Estonian embassy during the enlargement um, uh, process. So it's always good to have you um, back Godspeed with your work for the upcoming summit, and I'm sure it's not the, the, the it is the first time, but not the last time that you're coming to Hudson. Maybe you come to to brief us after the the summit uh, towards the end of the year. Um, let me give you uh, and let we have a round of applause.